Hey, everybody. Welcome to My Town Hustle. Today's episode is Confessions with a Recovering Engineer. Stay tuned. Welcome to My Town Hustle, where we take an in-depth look at the people, policies, and processes that make small towns work. Focusing on trends in urbanism and creative economies, My Town Hustle explores the ideas that make our community special. So sit back and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, that feels good. Always feels good, man. Feels good. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Sam Tootin, and with me is Brett Olfen. Hey, everybody. Hey. Jared is out of town. Mm. He's on vacation, but uh, Brett, we have a pretty exciting uh, show for everybody. If you want to give us a little, a little recap of what happened today. Yes, indeed. So this was an important day for us, a really great day. Um, we just had a wonderful conversation with Chuck Marone, the author of Strong Towns and the mm-hmm. author of his new book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. Yes. And we're really excited to share it with you. And I can tell you that uh, Chuck was gracious with his time. He was Absolutely. sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had great insight. Uh, he was really kind to us and uh, had great advice. And we just really invo- enjoyed our conversation with Chuck. Mm-hmm. And we're really excited to share it with you. So here you go. Yeah. Enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome to My Town Hustle. Today's episode, we're going to talk with a special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Charles Marone, the author of the book Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. And this episode is ironically titled Confessions with a Recovering Engineer. Obviously, previous episodes, we've talked about the book Strong Towns. uh, So we are just super, super delighted and very honored that uh, uh, Mr. Marone is on the podcast today. And we got a little overview and bio that uh, Brett's going to hit you up with. Yes, indeed. So, so uh, folks, I know you, if you've listened to My Town Hustle, you know we're big fans of Strong Towns, and so we're really excited to have Chuck with us today. I want to give a quick bio just in case you aren't familiar with uh, Mr. Marone and his work. So, Mr. Marone is the founder and president of Strong Towns, a nonprofit organization dedicated to building stronger and more financially stable cities. A professional engineer and land use planner by trade, our friend holds a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master's in urban and regional planning from the University of Minnesota. Charles is the author of the 2019 book and my town hustle favorite, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. This book provides real-world approaches to incremental development that can benefit communities of all sizes. Charles joins us today to discuss his most recent release entitled Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, which builds on the foundational thinking established as work in Strong Towns and gives a bold new perspective on our transportation system and the culture and values that have shaped it. So we are pleased to welcome the biggest Minnesota Twins to, fan to ever appear on My Town Hustle, Mr. Charles Marone. Good morning, sir. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you. And and my friends call me Chuck, so please call me Chuck. And just so we're clear, uh, I listen to My Town Hustle. I mean, I got it on my uh, podcast. Appreciate feed, that. Uh, oh, man. When you guys come through. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. It's It's funny because I think like the first 15 years of my career, we're a small town hustle. I mean, that was, yeah. that was, I was doing consulting work in small towns yep. around Minnesota. And yep. so it's, 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 it's fun for me to listen to you guys. It's a little bit like, um, you know, thinking about what, 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 where I came from a little bit, yeah. but, but then also, I mean, I, I do really appreciate how serious you are about taking our thoughts and ideas and applying them in a real place. It, it, it I have a lot of respect for it and just, 
I'm, I'm grateful. So when we came up with a new book, I'm like, I want to be on my town hustle and see if they'll have me. So oh man. Awesome. This is yeah. about that. Yeah. That we, 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 uh, probably are blushing. So we, that, that, that yeah. means a lot. Thank you very much. No, it's good. <laughs> so I want to jump, I wanted to jump right in Chuck. And so yeah. uh, Sam and I have both read the book. We really enjoyed the book. And, and if you've listened to our show, you know, we love hot takes and, and this, yeah. this book, in my mind was like the hottest of hot takes and I loved it. So my, my initial question is before we get into any of the content, how has the reception been so far? Man, it, we're six weeks in and it's still, you know, the, the feedback that you get as an author is actually very minimal in terms of like, how's the book doing? Right. Okay. I just keep getting these emails from the publisher going, this is awesome. Um, Amazon is the place where you get good stats. So like, this is not, uh, uh, you know, like some self-help book that's going to be number one on the New York times for whatever, but in like the categories it's in on Amazon, it's been number one for, you know, six weeks now. Uh, and it's pretty astounding. And yeah, so things are going really, really well. I think people are ready for this conversation. That's awesome. I agree. And I think just like strong towns, this book hit me, you know, much like you, Chuck, you know, coming out of a 20 year career working for a regional council and thinking, I did all these things that we're like trying to do better. Like I, I was complicit in doing all those things. Like I know fr- I have friends yeah, yeah. that are, that are traffic demand modelers and all those things. And I'm like, I know these people, so I can appreciate the feeling. Yeah. There is a certain cathartic. Um, I mean, I, I hope that other professionals uh, feel less threatened and more enabled to, uh, to, to themselves question things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what we need to do. I mean, I, 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 it's a confession. It's my personal confession. Part of it is very harsh on the profession itself that I was a, a part of, but I, I do feel like the, the proper response is less defensiveness than it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I get this. Like, how do we do things differently? Right. And, you know, that's when I listen to you guys, um, you know, and I'm sure this is mutual when I go through, you know, and listen to you guys, there's stuff that I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily exactly how I would say it, but I have deep respect for people who are like trying to work it out. Right. Like sure. you, you, the, the thing I admire is that you're not sticking your head in the sand and saying, you know, the way we do things is perfectly correct. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, and it's like you, yeah. like you, you know, we're in a place we really love. It's, it's a relatively small town. It's a very historic town established in 1788. We're going to get into that. Um, so we have all the, all the challenges that you're talking about and that you've experienced, you know, we're there with you. So we, yeah. we appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah you I had, get that too. Thank you. You had a quote in here. That I'm just, I, I want to get in. And I feel like now's a good time to do it is the convention conviction and one's predictions does not make them any more accurate when you talk about, uh, you know, <laughs> using the models and, for me, I think that that hit that hit really well, and I think that should hit every professional out there. That you know, obviously, we we do this for uh, a reason. We do it because we believe in it. We're passionate about it. Um, but we can not be on a pedestal the whole time. You know, we're we're, we're vulnerable people, um, and you know, to say that I'm always right uh, is an injustice to right. myself and the public and, and everybody else. So, uh, I just wanted to get that out there because I love, 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 love that, that, that quote. So thank you. It's preceded by a discussion of how traffic engineers are, are very confident in their predictions. And so are astrologers. Yeah. And <laughs> there's, a, yeah. there's a certain parallel in their accuracy, right? Yeah. <laughs> So there was a, I can't say Chuck, there were many books where like the forward, like had me like the forward really had me. And so, um, and and for those of you that might not have read the book, the forward of the book is 
uh, an imaginary conversation, if I believe correctly, between um, an engineer and speaking to a citizen about an upcoming road project. And they're both very interested in this project. They both have the best of interests in mind for their home and, and for the young, what I'm assuming is a young person, you know, for their profession and for their job. And again, coming out of my, my career, I, I read that and I was like, man, this was me. I have been in this position so many times and I, I understand both sides of it. And I think there's a lot more to this. I think this even, not to be too hyperbolic, but I mean, I think this even goes to like some of our like distrust in government and things like that. So there, there, this forward really had me wrapped up. I didn't know if you wanted to comment more on that, but I thought it was a really meaningful uh, way to introduce the book and the concepts. Absolutely. So I don't know if you all have seen the, the video I did, which was the conversation with an engineer. I did this back in like 2011. Yeah. And it was funny because I had, I'd had this week where I had, um, had these conversations with earnest engineers, people that I knew and, and, and respected, but they were bizarre conversations, you know, like we're going to rip out all these trees on this yeah. small road and, and widen this out. And we're going to do, you know, who cares about the budget? And it was, it was, um, it was craziness. And I, I got to the end of that week and I was aware of this. It was called extra normal. It's a company that's gone now, but you could go in and you could have this dialogue between these two digital bears is what I chose. Yes. yes. And I sat down and I did, I, I'm like, I wrote out this dialogue in an hour, you know, like it, it took me no time at all because it was all so fresh in my mind because going back and forth and just the thing about it. And I, I, I realized in retrospect that there's a certain genius to it. I don't think me, I think like the thing ended up sure. to have a certain insight where it, it, you take your, it's a circular conversation, right? It, it, it kind of reveals how our own preconceived, uh, you know, uh, sense of what should happen reinforces itself throughout the dialogue. So I, I believe that the road needs to be widened. So traffic flows more smoothly. So we get growth and we do the growth, you know, we need the growth in order to widen the road. And right. it's, it's this circular thing. And the woman in the dialogue is so, uh, grounded and logical and has just very human questions and they're disregarded in this gobbledygook of, of engineers of insider engineer speak that we all are taught and, 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 and mimic. Um, yeah. I, my mom read that and she called me up and she said, I was reading the introduction and I just, I, th this is not my Chucky. I did not like this. Uh, and then she's, and then I got to the end and I realized what you were doing. So yeah. Um, that's part of the, part of the hook, I, I think is hoping that some of the professionals that read this see themselves in that dialogue. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you, you know, do you think that the, um, you know, based off kind of this forward, that it's the responsibility of the profession to kind of obviously lead that conversation, especially when the, the local government is asking them to really just be thrown, you know, here, take, take this leap and be in front of the wolves and, you know, we'll, ha we'll sit back and just kind of let you explain it. Um, and maybe they're not yeah. suited to do that. I mean, I think that's, that's really real. Um, unfortunately, a lot of small rural areas of just, you know, here's the professional, listen to them. Right. I, there were many, many times in my career where I was asked to just stand up and take all the bullets. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you get paid for that. And I remember thinking, well, this is really dumb, but this is what I'm getting paid to do. This is my job. And it was a very unsatisfactory part of my job. And I recognized that I didn't really want to be in that position, but 
you know, at, at a time, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and I think this is an extension of this, this first chapter at the time I, you know, had to feed my family and I had to earn a living and I had a mortgage and I have kids. And, and so it's like, well, this is what I'm being asked to do right now. And I, I think that the challenge you have, sometimes you have to do your job and your job is to walk into a place that is really messed up and dysfunctional and stand up and take bullets. And that's not great. Yeah. But I think the challenge is to not lose your direction and lose your soul. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I would like to think that in my professional career, it, it's easier for me now because I don't have to be in that position. But I, I, I would like to think that in my professional career, if I was taking bullets from the front, I was also turning around and saying, here's, here's, how, you here's how we got to fix this process. Here's how we have to talk about this different. Here's how you actually need to think about this different because people are mad and, and they're mad for legitimate reasons. It might not be what you're hearing in front of you. That might be crazy. Yeah. But underneath the hood, you know, deeper down, there's something really dysfunctional here that we need to fix. Absolutely. Well yeah, said. Well that's said. the tough part. Yes. Um, I had a funny yeah. story to share with you, Chuck. <coughs> Goodness gracious. So funny story. So um, on the public meeting side, so we had a roundabout that was planned for a community here. And I've been to countless other public meetings about a myriad of topics. Nobody ever came. Like never once, hardly ever. Yeah, <laughs> but this round, I know where this is going. But this roundabout <laughs> thing, it was like nothing I've ever seen. People had man, shirts. this feels this feels European. People right. had signs. <laughs> People were mad, and it was incredible. So I know yeah. exactly when I read that, I yeah. knew exactly what you were talking about because I had one hundred percent been there uh, in another life. So it's it's very true. Well, I think the thing about, you know, being a practicing professional in, in this one of these situations is that you can go to a meeting and have a project that is seven figures and just like bizarre expenditure of money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the city council will be like, well, yeah, of course. And they'll just approve it. I, I remember once I was in a meeting and the engineer before me wanted like $300,000 for some stupid study of running sewer <laughs> to someplace where needed and it was i mean it was insane and they were doing boring work and they were doing all this stuff and and i never should have built the sewer system but they were going to study it three hundred thousand, and they're like yeah okay you know approved whatever yeah. and then it was me next and i only needed like five grand to do this park uh you know exposition thing and i was going to do public meetings and all this and i i mean i was going to lose my shirt on it but i was trying to you know i was trying to help out because i had this anyway they could, could you do it for 3000? Could right. you do it? And they were, and I'm like, you just blew 60 times my budget on some stupid thing that is never going to provide, you know, if, if anything, it's going to bankrupt you. Like it's not gonna provide any value for you. And I'm actually trying to do something that will make your city better. And you're, you know, nickel and diming me. That is what it's like to be a, a practicing engineer often yeah. in a city that, the things that trigger people um, often are the things that they can grasp. Yeah. And that is a, that's a, that's a very human statement, not an yeah. arrogant one, you know? True. Well, in the end, the end of the, the end of my little story was the roundabouts are that are, are now there and everybody loves them as, yeah. as we knew they would. So um, it, it was just, well, cause people don't like sitting at 
streetlights. Exactly. Like we said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they like to get where they're going in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of counterintuitive to think that moving slowly all the time is faster than moving fast and stopping and moving fast again. Yes. And, and that yeah. logic was like a challenge to like get that genie out of the bottle. So once we got there, it was fine. But boy, that at the beginning, terrible. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's a great segue into really our next topic, which I think is a critical, critical concept, obviously, in the book, um, which is Strode. Um, so you have the street, you have the road, and you got the Strode. Um, so, Chuck, uh, Chuck, could you give our audience kind of just a little rundown uh, overview of what a Strode is? Yeah. And I, there's an insight here that I didn't make the book that you guys will appreciate. Um, so I, the, the idea is that there are streets and there are roads. Uh, streets are platforms for building wealth. It's, it's, the, it's the framework for creating a place. And a road is a connection between places. So you're either in a place or you're going to a place. Um, both of these can be done from an engineering standpoint very effectively, from a safety standpoint really well. And, and from a finance standpoint, uh, we can build really productive streets that, that make us wealthy as a community and we can build uh, really great roads that connect us to other places and improve our economy and our jobs and, 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 and really connect us to the world. The Strode is the hybrid of the two. Uh, we, we call it the futon of transportation. So a futon <laughs> is an uncomfortable couch that makes into an uncomfortable bed. It, it tries to do two things at once and, and fails at both. And a strode tries to be both street and road. It tries to both move traffic quickly and be a platform for growth and development. Yeah. And you wind up at speeds that are not fast, but are not super slow, uh, you know, too fast to build any wealth, but too slow to get anywhere. Uh, and you wind up with development that while sometimes looks like success, I mean, it might be a Walmart or a, a you know, some other big box store or, or a strip mall or whatever. If you look at the return on investment, all this stuff is spread way out. And so you have all this unproductive space that costs a ton of money to provide service to and provides no wealth and no payback. The, the funny thing is, when I first developed this term, uh, and this again was like 10 years ago, uh, I used to capitalize every letter. So I would, I would write it in all caps. And people would say, like, why are you writing this in all caps? And it was because I, I thought engineers would read it think it was an acronym that they didn't know <laughs> right <laughs> and then search for it and find out what it actually meant right. and it's so offended like the people who uh are like uh grammar nazis you know in my <laughs> yeah. audience which there's right. a lot that's a that's a very real thing yeah. uh that i finally relented and made it like a real word yeah. not just uh all caps okay. <laughs> hopefully they credit you in urban dictionary hopefully chuck maroon they, is in they there. do they do. The, the funny thing is, though, that I think the really cool thing, and this is a like a professional, like I'm really proud of this. Um, I've heard many, many stories now of people using the word strode yeah. in sentences, in context. And then someone will ask them, well, you've you've heard of strong towns then, right? Like, you know, strong towns are like, I have no idea what strong towns is. Yeah. And so the word has really describe something that people experience. And it's it's become bigger than this organization in this movement, which I, you know, that's winning to us. Yeah. No doubt. I wanted to ask, so, you know, Brainerd, Minnesota and Marietta are, are largely the same size, you know, seem pretty similar. Do you have any advice for us on ways to kind of introduce or talk about this concept that, that people might be receptive to in communities like ours? Because for example, you know, we we're on uh, front street in Marietta, Ohio, a beautiful street in our downtown, historic storefront buildings. 
and in your in your words, it's like it's flat and straight like a racetrack, and so that gives all the signs to a driver to do what? That's to go fast, and so right. it's the perfect uh, example of a strode that could have any type of improvement that would be wonderful for pedestrians and other uses. So, what what are some strategies that are good to kind of introduce this concept and and open people up to talking about this in a new way that we that might be useful for us or anybody else? Well, let me give you two insights on that. The the first one is that I'm doing this book tour now and I know I'm coming to Ohio and we should stay in touch because I, I can come to your community and take the bullets, right? Yes. Like that's oh, yeah. like, I literally can stand up in front of people and say this, and then I move on and it's actually good for me to do it that way. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy to do that for you guys. The, the, the second thing though, and I feel like this is the, the blessing and the curse of a small town. Um, in my early days of Strong Downs, if you go back and read the stuff I was writing in 2008, 2009, 2010, I was a very angry man. You know, I was very uh, upset with the direction my community was going. I was very upset. And and really like a decade and a half of practice had kind of welled up into, you know, I was, I was, I was mad. Yeah. I was very ticked off. And so a, a lot of my writing and a lot of my advocacy work back then uh, was just me almost like saying I'm fed up and I'm going to flame some people. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's not a very effective way to make change in a place. That's a very effective way to get you uninvited from everything and, and, and yeah. not, you know, not do real well. I, I've, I feel like, and I'm, I'm an imperfect person to answer this question. Um, but I'll give it the best I can. I, I, I am reasonably confident now that the way these things happen is through relationships. It's through individual conversations. And I've found that I am most effective here in my hometown where I don't uh, go in with a mindset uh, of like, here's what I want to accomplish, or here's, here's the message I want people to leave with. But I go in with listening as like my first, uh, you know, my, my, my first second, third, and fourth thing that I do. And, and then within the context of that, I try to add value. Um, And so, you know, our strodes are horrible. Our parking situation is bizarre. The way we like, there's a litany of things that I can get really worked up about here. If you just push me a little bit, (laughs) but I found that, you know, I sit through these meetings and eventually they get to all of them. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they get to all of them and I'm not like, Winston Churchill said a fanatic is someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. If I, if if I, if I come across as a fanatic, no one listens to me. If I come across as like a helpful person with knowledge that is meeting you where you are and then helping you maybe see the problem that you're facing in a slightly different way and then offer some context to think about it differently. I've found that that is a really, really powerful way to, to, to not just nudge, you know, introduce ideas and nudge people along, but actually build allies within a community. So I, I feel like I, I, spent a, I spent a lot of time as a young man uh, screwing up things. And, you know, it, it started with relationships. And I, I feel like I've gotten better at that, but I've, I've got a ways to go yet, too. Yeah, I, I really, really appreciate that take. Um, you know, Brett. Brett can know that from working with me that I come into the, you know, in the office some days, just furious. Um, and, and I think I'm, a, I'm, I don't have as many experience, uh, years experience as Brett, but you know, I think for me, I'm at this critical point where I just see, I'm seeing things. I, and I'll be honest, I read this book and I was, I don't live in town. 
but I was like, I got to move into town. Um, yeah. And it, and it just motivated me, but, um, it's, I, I appreciate hearing that because I do have to tell myself like, all right, calm down. Like it's not a big deal in the large scheme of things. And you know, it's really, well, you, you read strong towns, yep. you know, that I, you know, for 15 years, my wife and I lived way out of town. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that the, the dissonance of that grew and grew and grew, yeah. um, it's very hard to be an advocate living, you know, it's very hard yes. to be like writing the things I was writing and living in a place, you know, so there's a certain, I mean, uh, I, I feel like we're all imperfect humans trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Um, if we can, if we can be generous with each other, we can be generous with ourselves and, and realize it's a work in progress. Right. Yes. Yeah. And especially in a small town, if we're not generous with each other, if we're not, you know, going to give each other the, the the benefit of the most generous interpretation of people's intentions and people's actions and people's thoughts, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go mad with each other. You know, like we, we have to do that. Yeah, it's true. We Absolutely. we we always talk about scorched earth, and we're not scorched earth folks, and and we've seen how that turns out for others, and we don't we don't want to do that. So Absolutely. that's a yeah. great great point. Yeah. Let's see here. I think the Strode, Strode part of the conversation, again, very critical in the book throughout. Um, Brett, do you have any takes on, on the Strode? I mean, we, for those listeners, obviously, and anybody in, rural, in small towns, I think most of our streets here are Strodes. Agreed. Um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's not that it's happened through malicious intent, right? Yes. It, it's happened quite naturally. We, our culture, and, you know, Sam and Jared listened to me rant about this, like, our culture loves cars, and I love cars. But I also understand it's not the only thing to all of us. It's not the only symbol of success and upward mobility and, you know, financial uh, access to other things. And so, but we've based our communities around them for the last, you know, generation, and we're we're unwinding that slowly. And the Strode concept hit me because it started out as like you said chuck a street or a road and then we wanted to have everything there or as much as we could and so naturally yeah more ingresses more egresses more stops this that how can we jam bikes in here where are the people going to walk put them over there so um it, it's it's just a point like sam was making now when i drive everywhere i'm like man oh yeah here's another one so it really kind of yeah. changes the way you look at it and so i think it's important and i hope more people can really grab onto that well especially in small town, Ohio, I mean, very similar to, to small town, Minnesota. Um, these are not places that are overflowing with success right now. Right. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of struggles and I, I think, you know, part of my recognition was that we have done so much here to create a certain style of growth and development. And that, that pattern, that style was not, resulting in prosperity. In fact, right. we were leading the state in unemployment. We were leading the state in people living below the poverty line. We yeah. were, and we were spending millions of dollars. Our population is the same as it was at the end of world war two. And we had like 10 times the area. Yeah. Right? right. So all these people, you know, our daily traffic was going up and all, you know, all the measurements of success from an engineering standpoint, but it was the same number of people. We're just driving more. Uh, we're just have more pipe. We just have more stuff. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is actually bankrupting us. I mean, there's, yeah. it's not doing what it's supposed to. So part of the Strode was asking the question about, well, how do we, how do we make a small town work? And I, 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 I think if we go back and look in time, what we recognize is that there's a certain um, 
uh, hibernation kind of thing that happens. That's the, that's the, the word that comes to my brain is like, you know, you, you look at a bear and a bear will like, you know, beef up when, when things are good, like they eat the berries, they, they eat the fish, they eat whatever they can and they get what the food that they need, because they know that there's going to be a long stretch of nothing coming up and they got to survive that and make it through that. And if you look at the way small towns in particular get to that larger stage, I mean, the way that a small town like Brainerd becomes a big city like Minneapolis, there's, there's all these stages you go through that really look like the cycle of hibernation. You know, we, we, we beef up when we can, and then we have this long period of time where we're kind of stagnant and then the next growth phase hits and we build up. But the thing is that building up has to be stable and strong and enduring so you can survive these long periods of time. Well, the post-war development pattern has just been all about the sunshine. I mean, it's been all about, you know, it's always harvest time, right? We've had, we've had 70 years of it's always like, there's always corn in the field, you know, just go pick. And I think in small towns, the fear we should have is that if we have a decade of not that, uh, we're yeah. very, very, fragile. very fragile. True. Yeah. And I think Chuck, and, and to close that, I think we're seeing a lot of those bills and communities like ours and yours coming due. And and I think yeah. you said it in strong towns, you, we're now asking the question, could we ever afford it? Quite honestly, you know, all the things that we did, could we ever really afford it? So. Right. Right. That's, that's the struggle. And I think, you know, we, we have a lot of rebuilding to do in a sense of localizing our economies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that idea that like prosperity looks like us having a car payment so we can drive to a Walmart so that our capital can get shipped out of the community as quickly as possible. That's a, that's not a wealth building strategy, right? right? Like every part of that transaction sends money out of the community Yes. Yeah. very, very quickly yes. from, you know, buying the car to putting gas in the car, to paying the insurance premium to, uh, you know, the asphalt on the road yep. to the actual transaction at, at Walmart. None of that actually builds wealth here. True. Very correct. Man. So the next topic um, we wanted to talk about, and this, this was another one that really spoke to me. And I think it was one of another, one of those things we just kind of unconsciously take for granted and we don't realize it until something like this book comes along and helps us realize it is in the transportation networks, whose mistakes are we forgiving (laughs) and and think about it. And I just thought this was so important because um, I'm a, I like to ride bikes. I'm a mountain bike person. And so you can catch me on trails around town, but I also ride in town. And I think about when I'm in my car, I've got all this signage, all the striping, all the safety implements, all the signaling, the wide shoulders, everything is to, Give me the ultimate latitude when I'm operating my car. And if I'm outside of my car, sorry about your luck. Um, and I just thought that was a huge, I never, another one of those moments where I just, I never thought about it until I thought about it. And then it was so obvious, I can't unsee it, kind of like the Strode. So I think yeah. that's another like critically important concept because I think we're sidetracking ourselves and I'll like to get your reaction with like complete streets. Um, it, complete streets is an important step. I'm, I'm glad we're at least having the conversation around, you know, bike and ped access and greater mobility for everybody. And that's important, but it's like, we need to keep, we need to keep going because yeah. we've already overbuilt it for vehicles and, and we can't just keep adding in everybody else as we want to. So there has to be some intent there. So I thought that was an incre- incredibly important concept and wanted to know if, if you could, you know, share a little bit more about that. 
Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I mean, I'm sure we've all been in meetings where the engineer would say, you know, we have to do this because, right. uh, you know, a, a car will hit this if not, and someone yes. will die. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I remember doing that. I, I wrote about the tree in the city of Cross Lake at the beginning of that chapter and how, you know, there's this gorgeous, beautiful tree. And I remember thinking, we don't, we certainly don't have to take out this one. Right. And the answer was universally, like, how could we not? I mean, yeah. as soon as you yeah. don't, some drunk's going to come flying around this corner and hit this tree, and then we're all going to get sued and it's going to be really bad. Yeah. We go to, we go to enormous lengths to forgive uh, it, it, within our designs, the mistakes that drivers make because drivers are humans, right? Yeah. And, and humans make mistakes. And so we, as a very compassionate society, as a, as a profession that is, is tuned to, you know, human flourishing, hopefully as our North star, uh, we said, well, we can reduce auto fatalities and make roads safer for people. If we can forgive, uh, common mistakes that we see. Right. So let's widen out lanes. Let's widen out shoulders. Let's create a lot of extra room so that you know, if people do normal things, they don't wind up in these horrible collisions. Yes. Um, that is a, that is a genius insight. And it's, it's amazing because you can go around the world. I've, I've had a, a great opportunity to travel a lot uh, overseas and actually drive in, in places where you even drive on the other side of the road, uh, you know, <laughs> like uh, very, you know, all, all over. And, and the amazing thing is that our approach, the American approach to highway design has been copied around the world and it's genius. It saves tons of lives. The problem is that we became very myopic when we brought that within complex urban spaces. When we bring that into a city, um, we still have as our North star protecting the driver Mm -hmm. and we have lost all coherence when it comes to forgiving the mistakes that other people might make. And to me, the, 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 the kind of prime way to think about this, the, 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 the kind of peak of dissonance, cognitive dissonance to me is the sheer pins on the, you know, the traffic signal with the beg button. So you have a place where you know humans are going to stand because you actually put a button there for them to go and press in order to cross the street. And in that location, you also have created a, a device, a, a, a pedestal that a traffic signal sits upon and this button sits upon that has shear pins in it because vehicles hit this with such force and such regularity that people were dying and being killed traumatically by, by hitting these things. And so if you hit a traffic signal, it will actually give way and absorb some of your kinetic energy uh, dissipate that energy so the driver doesn't feel trauma. Somehow we do this in all good conscience, knowing that we have also planned for humans outside of a vehicle to be in that space, right. yeah. yep. subject to that trauma. And that doesn't create tension within us as a profession. I, I, yeah. that, that to me is you, 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 something's broken in your brain if you can build a system like that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think that it makes engineers immoral. I think what it does is it, it, it suggests that the practice of engineering is so out of touch with the society it's serving sure. that it, it is, it, it is, uh, is become like internally corrupt. 
Yeah, and I loved you. Yeah. You gave an example, and I think it was maybe in the Great Streets chapter where it's like imagine, and I think this was happening in Europe, but it was like imagine an intersection where there's little to no impediments for any access, but the cars are basically the second class citizen. The humans are the first, you know, the humans yeah. are there with intent, and the cars are kind of meandering and making their way and waving, hey, thank you, and all yeah. that, and give a thumbs up. Yeah, I just, I mean, yeah, how incredible does that sound? But also. How far is that from where we are now? I mean, it, it's just, inc- I mean, that sounds so foreign, li- literally yeah. and figuratively foreign, from where we are right. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was driving through, I was driving through Ireland and Ireland has, uh, you know, their highways, their interstate system feels like our, our county roads, really. I mean, in okay. terms of scale, you know, you wind through the, the Irish countryside, but when you get, you know, you can go a decent clip when you get to a city they will have these massive traffic calming, what we would call them. I, I don't know what they call them, but you would go through this transition where you would go from highway speeds to street speeds in 400 feet. Sometimes it would be like a narrowing of the lane and they'd bring up the curb and like yeah. bring you in and you would just feel like constrained. And so you'd slow way down. Yeah. Sometimes it would be a really sharp traffic circle, but either way you would end up on the other side of this driving very slowly just because of the design and then you were in the middle of this irish city and for me um you know i'm driving on the wrong side of the road it's it's disorienting anyway so i'm kind of peaked to go slow but the thing that astounded me is that what we would call jaywalkers was just the city just walkers (laughs) it it was you're, you're driving through this town and th- there's just people walking all over and people, you know, in the middle of the street, walking down the street and walking across. And what you had was like a great place, right? Yes. You, yeah. you had like a great town and the vehicles were, the people driving and the vehicles were like a lower, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say it this way. And I don't know if this is exactly how I mean it, but like a lower class of, of existence yeah. in that public realm. Yeah. At the very least, they were equals, right? They didn't get to dominate it. You had to watch out for people. You had to navigate around them. And it really made the place quite spectacular to be in. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in the book about how, and culturally, but also this ego that we have as we drive. You know, mm-hmm. I think we experience that here in our, in our front street strode of, you know, that is getting honked at when you're trying to cross. I mean, I've, uh, I've tried to cross with the little guy who tells me I can cross and got yeah. gotten weird looks. But do you think um, that can change, I guess, culturally? And especially, I mean, rural America, you know, we in the post-war development, you know, really, really small communities, unincorped, 500 pop, you know, or just they have to rely on the car to get to get to Marietta. And unfortunately, our community then says, well, by those people complaining of what it's like to be in here, you know, we have to dictate now how our roads are built. Um, you know, can I guess that coexist potentially where in very rural settings, they are going to obviously have to use the car, but we can bridge this gap. Once you're in the city, you know, you are in this domain. I think a lot of people in this space think that it's just like a matter of human compassion, right? Like yeah. if we just... If we just fix the humans, if we can just make right. them better people, if we can just do like a public education campaign. Yeah. And I find all that to be silly, mm-hmm. right? I, I do. Yeah, because yeah. you take those same people and have them drive through a parking lot at an elementary school. And none of them are revving their motors in aggression. True. None of them are like honking at the little kids trying to cross in front <laughs> of them. They're, they're very aware that in that space, in that particular space, 
they're a lesser player. They need to be deferential and they need to be human, right? When you get out on the strode, what we've done is we've actually designed and licensed aggression into the design. Yeah. You know, if, if you are sitting at a red light waiting your turn, what you are doing is you are seeding all uh, your capacity to think, to make a decision for yourself. You could be sitting at a red light at one in the morning, right? Where like no yeah. one's, there's no one around and you could clearly go like you're an intelligent, thoughtful person. Yeah. I can go here, but you don't because you've, you've acceded to the trade-off that I will accept that I have no ownership over this space. I am feeble. I am small. I will sit here and go zero because when the light turns green, I own this space. It yeah. is mine. And, yeah. and you better yeah. get the hell out of my way because yeah. I just earned the right by my sitting there. I earned the right to dominate this space. Absolutely. And I do think that through changes of design, we can actually allow people to become more human. I mean, the, yeah. the better version of themselves. The, the Poynton example that you brought up earlier, there's a, there's a street in Poynton, England, uh, where they did this shared space, amazing design. I mean, it's, it's almost magical as from a design standpoint, mm -hmm. where they take, you know, it's, it's, it's all these streets coming together, these four lane, and they had all these signalized stuff and, and it was angry and loud and, and aggressive. And they narrowed the lanes down to one lane coming in each way. People said that's insane for right. flow reasons. You can't do it. Yeah. Uh, but then most radically, they got rid of the signals and they just allow like like in that school parking lot, they just allow the traffic at slow speeds to kind of filter through this space. And, you know, to demonstrate its efficacy that the designer actually put on a blindfold and walked backwards through the middle of it. He's like, look, like this is a, this is a gentle human space. No one's going to run over anyone. No one's going to drag. Well, I've been in spaces like this and it's, it almost is um, disorienting to an American because we're so used to this, this, this licensed aggression, this, this design that you either own the space or you're earning the right to own it. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that the idea of sharing it in that way is really, really, uh, it's almost magical. It's almost like, how does this is only in a strange continent like Europe, could they do something? So, you yeah. know, yes. And it's not, they're humans just like we are. They yes. just have designed it differently. Yes. Love that. Love that. It's true. Yeah. So true. And by the way, I mean, you guys mentioned this earlier, but get rid of the signals and lower the speeds. Yeah. And you actually get to where you're going more quickly. You know, I mean, that's, that's the thing is like this whole thing about licensing aggression, it's sitting at a red light, earning your right to dominate the space. Uh, it actually costs you more travel time. It actually makes you get to your place more slowly and most trips. That's, that's the bizarre trade-off, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So the last, so a couple more points here, Chuck, and then we'll get on to some other topics. Um, the funding, the funding consideration in the book, and, and as we uh, work in our transportation networks, is is never far from the surface because it's so important, and especially in rural communities, you know, we need every state and federal dollar to really do anything that we want and need to do, and so that's that's a real challenge that we face. But yeah. we recognize that when, and, and as you point out in the book, you know, when you're playing it by the game through the game of traffic congestion, traffic counts, uh, fatalities. 
you know, property damage crashes, roadway departures, all those. If those are the only metrics we have to access funding, you get, you kind of get what you get, which is what we're talking about. So, um, and that's really, and it's really hard to, you know, for communities like ours, it's hard, it's hard to be competitive in those spaces. And and it's kind of like, you can get money if you're really messed up. Well, I was going to say, it's like, it's almost like bizarro world, right? It's like, well, in order for us to do good on the funding side, it has to be really bad out there. And so you're Mm -hmm. like in this opposite land. So, and, and I don't think folks always, uh, understand that that narrative around the data and i think you do a great job in the book of talking about that but yeah. i mean that funding piece is so important and so is is there more that you want to say about like kind of how we might be able to make that a little better compared to what it is now because right now it, it, we're not really set up to be competitive and if we are competitive in the real life we wouldn't want the conditions that cause that right yeah. L- let me um I, I feel like there's two really important points for a small town that are both hard to hear. Yeah. So let me let me say them, and then you guys don't have to okay. carry this banner at Exciting. all. But I, I I can say them. I think the first one is that small towns are 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 not uh, high wealth places. Um, and if we go back to the 1950s and the 1960s, in those immediate decades after World War II, even then, most streets were not paved. Most streets were dirt streets. If you got to a small town, there might be enough wealth to pave main street, right? Because that's where all our shops were. And that's where everybody went. We we all kind of shared in that. But you were going into the neighborhoods, you weren't seeing streets paved, it was dirt. And really paving a street is an obnoxious luxury. Uh, (laughs) We're we're so used to it. We're so like attuned to it. Um, But it is an obnoxious luxury in in terms of like you know the the way we spend our money the way we uh, accumulate wealth it, it is almost like having a big front yard you're you're displaying something as opposed to you know having and I realize we've grown used to it um, but I think that the reality is we're going to go the other way I mean you guys know whenever we sit down with any small town and we go through their budget uh, they'll have twenty cents. 25 cents on the dollar cash flow of what they need to maintain all their roads and streets. Right. Yeah. And, and so this brings me to the second thing, which is the trade-off we make with funding. So because we don't have the money to maintain what we consider our core infrastructure, paved streets, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to realize core infrastructure is the water you drink and the sewage system coming out of your place. True. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. the paved street. The paved street is going to be the thing we, it's going to be that, that luxury item we give up at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, as, 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 as we're looking at this, our desperation becomes, how do we get money to help us fix all these streets? And we do that by making a deal with the devil. You know, we go to the state, we go to the federal government. Uh, we say we need, you know, programs to help us pave streets and maintain streets. Yes. And those programs always come with the catch that the design has to be to, and I'm going to say to a highway standard, it it has to, Mm -hmm. why would the state, you know, why would the people from all the surrounding communities of you and all over the state make an investment in your community, unless it's going to serve a state purpose. And it's going to serve a state purpose by being a regional roadway, meaning uh, 18 wheelers got to be able to come through at speed to get stuff from way over here to way over here. Yeah. And that means that your streets have to become highways. 
Um, by the deal with the devil, what this does is it actually gives you the money to solve your immediate problem today at the cost of your long-term prosperity, your long-term potential, your long-term uh, trajectory. Yeah. I, I've, I, I feel like, you know, there's two solutions here. I mean, one is we find other ways to, to solve these problems, uh, forego the money. That is really, really, really difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would love, the other solution would be, I would love to see state and, and federal processes reform. Um, and instead of giving cities money for transportation with all these strings, just give them money to, to transition and figure this stuff out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, that's not what we seem like we're going to do. Yeah. yeah. And I want to throw this fact out there and, and just kind of partially I want to say this on wax because I think people don't really have a sense of, of what this means. So and, and Chuck, maybe Minnesota does this as well. We have gas tax in Ohio and that gas tax revenue is split up between all 88 counties in Ohio. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of county engineers over the last 20 years. And some of them, you know, they'll tell me straight up, you know, the gas tax revenues are 80 percent of our annual budget. 80% right. gas tax revenue yeah. from our annual budget. And so think about all the chip seal and resurfacing and everything that you expect your county engineer to do happening um, with, with only gas tax fees uh, out there. So I don't think right. folks have a good sense of that, but that's, that's a tremendous amount. And so, yeah. you know, we're even more strongly tied to the, the, the personal vehicle, vehicle miles traveled, you know, all those metrics. It, it makes it even harder as we're discussing. So I just, I don't, I want to say that out loud so folks can hear that and kind of begin to understand what that really means. Yeah. Well, and you all um, more so than us, because we have a, 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 I think a broader funding mix in Minnesota. It, one of the things that was fascinating, fascinating in a cruel way about the, <laughs> the early days of the pandemic was how governments that were really dependent on sales tax, really dependent on gas tax, really dependent on these very volatile, kind of taxes, uh, when the economy does what the economy does, which is experience volatility, they get immediately whacked. Yes. Yeah. I mean, immediately whacked. And it becomes really, really, I mean, you'll have contracts out that are, you know, payable within the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. Yep. And you will have your revenue stream the next quarter drop by 90%. And yeah. I mean, this is a radical, yeah. it's a very volatile way to run a government. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Agreed. Um, well, I want to thank Chuck for his time for our main interview. Um, Chuck, we really love the book. Uh, we appreciate your insights. Um, thanks for making your time to come on our little podcast, Sam. Yes, any, any final items for you? I don't want to take it all away from you. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, for me, I think you just at least just recently hit on a good point in terms of, of this kind of accepting the state and federal money for, for them to fix our problems. I mean, I think our show and I think you're, you know, I think movements out there like strong towns are really just to get the voice back to people. Yeah. Um, I think we here, uh, especially locally, will definitely say outsiders are, you know, are, um, you know, not not invited. Right. And or we don't right. want and, and especially people out there who are really, really against accepting state or federal funds, um, you know, for everything that comes with that. You know, I think now is really the point locally to just kind of really apply that everywhere, but also work with your state and federal uh, representatives in terms of this change, because, you know, everybody can agree we're the best at solving our problems um, and give us that voice back in that. So I think that was yeah. well said. So I wanted to reiterate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's a tough, that's it, it, a tough one. It is. Cause you don't want to be the anti, right. You're anti-growth, anti-investment, anti-city. Um, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. But the compassion and part that, that you spoke earlier in the, in the interview is really important to that dialogue of, you know, let's, let's find better solutions than just point the finger and yell and do all that. Uh, yeah. So, and, and we, and I think we need more voices to, um, have courage, you know, and, mm-hmm. and look forward with optimism. I think we operate in a, in a deficit of optimism, just, in, you know, everything is so bad. Everything is so hard. I mean, it is, but in the, in the context of the world, it's still the United States and that's still pretty darn good comparatively. So, um, we really appreciate the message and it certainly resonates with us and, um, it means a lot to our work and, um, I hope there's, I hope more people can pick up on it as, as time goes on. So it's really meant a lot to us. Yes. Everybody Thank out you. there, buy the book, read it, check it out. Um, we'll put some stuff in the show notes for sure of where, uh, where you can buy it and, and links to your website and uh, Chuck, any wrap up that you would like to, to give well, the audience any. Yeah. I just, I want to say again, thanks. Thanks for doing this podcast. I mean, I, I, I know you guys uh, are struggling with these things and struggling, not in a, in a, you know, in a bad way, you're struggling in the good way of saying, all right, we're, we're, we're not going to be blind to these issues. We're actually want to deal with them. We love the places that we're in and I respect that. And I, I just really admire what you're doing and, and I'm really uh, pleased that you're out there doing it. So please keep going and let's keep in touch. I, you know, Absolutely. I am going to keep listening and uh, if I can help, let me know. Chuck, maybe yeah. we can uh, yeah, maybe absolutely. we can meet up at Great American Ballpark one day and catch some old hardball. That would be, That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. All yeah. right. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, Chuck. And we'll see you all next time. See you. Thank you for listening to My Town Hustle. We would greatly appreciate it if you would share our podcast with someone who you think would benefit greatly from it. But most importantly, subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you consume your podcasts. It would mean the world to us. Until next time, folks, thanks for listening.